How's everybody doing? Yeah, it was fair to partly cloudy. That's all right. I'm kidding. You guys are awesome. Well, I, I want to warn you, 1115, if you're always in the 1115 and you like this gathering because there's a little bit more room and you got seats next to you, I basically chastised the nine people and said, some of you are going to. It's standing room only. Um, we're putting out lots of plastic chairs and different things at the nine. Um, and then I should have taken a picture of all of these poor people that I made raise their hands and say, I promise I'll go to the 1115 and find parking. <laughs> Um, and they did. Austin actually said, I, he's like, you should have taken a picture, you know, hold them to it, you know, stand up here with their hands up. We'll verify if you're at the 1115. So those seats that you have that are, you know, kind of spread out between you, those are now gone and it's all my fault. Um, but it's a good thing. It's a good, good problem. We're in this space, uh, for a little while longer and, uh, I, which is, is awesome. It's been an amazing, amazing space, but we're growing. So we have to you know, adjust and make our kind of movements as we go. Um, we've got some other uh, exciting plans uh, down the road for Ocean City Church. Just, it's hard to believe that God just keeps inviting more and more people into the unending ocean of grace, like Dave said, here at the beach and beyond. Um, and God's allowed us to play a small part in that mission and that vision. Well, if you got your Bible, turn with me to uh, Psalm chapter 46. That's where we are in our playlist series. I'd love to uh, thank Mike Berry for coming up here and just crushing it last week. Um, he's right here in the front row. You can hug him and say awesome, good pictures of space and stuff last week. Um, it really was, it was amazing. If you missed it, you, as one, I, you know, I don't often say, please go back and look at our sermons online. Be the third person that watches one of those videos. Um, but I would say definitely go back and check that one out. It was awesome. I heard uh, that at nine, he did a little dance and he called it the Derek dance. And then he was immediately ashamed of himself which hurts deeply, Mike. Uh, you should be proud of the Derek dance. Um, but uh, it was so great. And, and there's, there's elements of today that I'd love to kind of, you know, attach onto some of the things that Mike said. But um, I was looking at this, this particular psalm. And if I had a, a playlist title or a track title, I just got one track today, and it's Don't Panic. My family is very into Coldplay. And if you've never heard the song, Don't Panic, shame on you. Uh, you should go uh, listen to that. They released it in 1999. I know that's a long time ago. Um, but the, the, this psalm really kind of wraps its, its teeth into this idea of what, you know, our, our response as followers of Jesus when, when panic comes. And I was thinking about it, um, just how the Bible speaks to us. I don't know why this came to mind, but I was, um, Beth and I just had celebrated our uh, 28th wedding anniversary. Thank you. Yes. You can clap. I expected applause before you even clapped. I'm like, you should clap for eight years. Those of, those of you that are married in here, you, you're like, yeah, it's tough. Um, but no, it's, it's an amazing thing. And there's, God does some amazing things in marriage. And not everybody, marriage isn't easy. And uh, different people have different roads, rocky and rough. And, um, but in the, the unity, the, the God, God, his design uh, was marriage. And then when, when that unity happens, interesting things happen. We're riding around in the car. It's like you, you kind of know, know what you're saying. And I, um, Beth just leans over to me. We're cruising, uh, you know, uh, down A1A. And she leans over and she goes, did you go see the kooky monster? And I was like, yeah, I did. And she goes, how was it? I was like, yeah, it was pretty good. Like who would know what that even means unless you're married, right? Because you're asking right now, what in the world is the kooky monster? And not the cookie monster, the kooky monster. And she'd never used that term before, and I still knew what she meant. That's pretty strange, right? Um, and it was my, it was, I went to the doctor's office, there's this person that's there at the doctor's office that's a little kooky, and 
I knew exactly what she was talking about when she said kooky monster. I just, you know, immediately assumed it's my wife. She uses weird terms like that. She's talking about the PA in that office. And if you're watching this video, I'm sorry. Stop being kooky. Um, but it, it goes to show you that when you get married, when, when this unity happens, this, this God-born unity of marriage, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, God is the one that ordains marriage. And when that unity happens, life changes. Immediately it institutes changes. You, you're in a different situation. You're becoming one flesh and you become like each other. Beth and I were very different people when we got married. There's, our kids laugh at the similarity uh, of things that, that we share uh, now that we've been married for 28 years. Even right when you get married, I tell young guys that right when they get married, hey, these things are gonna change. Legally, there's some things that need to change. Please get your marriage certificate before we get, so I can sign all the stuff. Uh, your taxes are gonna change. A lot of things are gonna change. Your relationship to the opposite sex is gonna change. You're no longer gonna have really girls that are friends. Like you don't have somebody, a texting buddy that's a girl when you're married. You have one girlfriend now, it's your wife. I mean, that's just, it changes immediately. And the Bible informs, like the Apostle Paul, he's so good at using and leveraging the Word of God by the power of the Spirit to lead us on the ground outside these doors. He did it for the church in Rome. He did it for the church at Colossae. He did it for the church at Ephesus. He did it for the church at Philippi. He was so good at, at taking the words of God and saying, now that since you, he would say, and all the epistles would be, have the gospel on the front end, and then he would say, since you've been raised with Christ, or now that, you've, now that you've been joined with Christ, or since you are a new creation in Christ, you've shared in his death, and now you've shared in his resurrection, and now you're a new body of believers adopted into this new family. You're woven in, in together into the household of God. And now it's possible for you to live differently than you did. Now you can be different. You can, you can walk towards, not that you automatically do it, or Paul wouldn't have to say anything, but you, there's, we have the ability to walk towards life where previously we would be self-centered. We would just live for ourselves. Why would we follow anything but ourselves if we didn't believe in God? But once you realize and you wake up to the reality and by the power of the Spirit, you can walk towards life. And he says, this is what it looks like. So marriage is different. And he's telling the church at Rome, and I'm getting ready to read a passage in Romans chapter 15. Uh, this is what it looks like to live life. This is, this is how we can react to the government. This is how we can react in our marriages. This is what sexuality looks like for a follower of Jesus. Not to tell the world that they've got, they're doing it all wrong, to, to lead them to the light, to be a city on a hill, saying we're clinging to something that's changed us forever. And now we're living in the light. And the Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 15. And we're going somewhere um, before I read Psalm 46, or we read it together. He says this, he says, for everything that was written in the past, and the Apostle Paul right here is talking about the Psalms. He's, he's just quoted Psalm 69, and he says, for everything that was written in the past was written to what? To teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. He's like, there's hope in here. We should read these, the, these Psalms that we're reading, this playlist, this, this restructuring and reframing of the way that we think as followers of Jesus, as the people of God, we can live differently. And they're not irrelevant, even though they're set in times that are way, he even says it. These things were written in the past. He's saying, I, I get this. Even in his time, the Psalms are old, they're ancient. But he's saying these things are valuable, not just to be churchy people to know Bible verses and so you can be the smartest person in your city group or your Bible study. 
He's saying, no, when you live life, it shows you what it looks like to live practically. How do we treat people? How do we engage with people at our job, in our workplace? How do we engage in our marriages? How do we raise our families? He's, he so trusts the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit that would lead us. And he's talking specifically of the Psalms. So I say all that leading into this Psalm saying, this Psalm, Psalm 46 is, is written and it was written in the past to teach us. And God's elevating it right now in 2023 in this room to teach us, to lead us, to give us an idea of what it looks like for followers of Jesus when that moment that most of us would wanna panic comes, to not panic. To as this passage says, to be still and know that he is God. Because that's not what the world does. But it's, it's, it's a banner, it's a bright shining light for followers of Jesus when they're looking at the, at the church and they're looking at Jesus followers and there's genuine, authentic people that aren't panicking in the midst of struggle and in the midst of trouble. So what I wanna do is we're gonna read this Psalm and just to give you a, a little bit of setup, it's written to the sons of Korah. Now the sons of Korah, um, Korah, people always ask this question, like who's Korah? Because um, you don't really hear about Korah, you only hear about the sons of Korah. There's 11 Psalms that are written to the sons of Korah, the gatekeepers, they're somehow a part of the, kind of the, the, uh, the priestly worship people. Um, I don't know if they're back of house or front of house, I'm not sure exactly where they are. I don't know if they wear skinny jeans and Chelsea boots or what their attire was. Um, we just know that there was psalms that were written for them and that they were part of the performing those psalms and bringing those psalms before the people. So there was 11 of them. Korah was uh, somebody that was part of, he was a Levite. Um, he was around when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness with Moses. And when Moses went up to, to commune with God uh, and come down with the Ten Commandments, he was part of the people that, you know, decided, hey, you know, we don't know what we're supposed to do. Why don't we make our own golden image? Let's make a golden calf. So his end wasn't good. The earth swallowed Korah up. So we don't hear about Korah much more after that. But the sons of Korah apparently were a lot better than Korah because we hear about them a lot in the Psalms. So what we're going to do in reading this Psalm uh, that was written for the people of God is we're going to do it together. Uh, instead of having a reader come up, I thought, man, let's all together, let's hear this Psalm being read in the room to one another. So let's stand together. Let's do nice, nicely done. Some people are all, are, sometimes it's like people look around like, are we, we're, we're, I guess we're getting up right now um, in the middle of a sermon. Um, all right, so let's read this together. Read with, with uh, the authority that, that God's given us all as a part of the church. Verse one says, God is our refuge and strength and ever present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, a holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, and she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the shield with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. 
The God of Jacob is our fortress. Thanks be to God for the beauty and the power of his word. You may be seated. Man, I love hearing that in the room. I mean, as we read that too, you can just kind of, you, you feel the, just the, the, the power in, in the words. I mean, there's a reason that people have attached themselves to be still and know that I am God. There's a reason it's on, you know, some witness wear, some Christian t-shirts and some coffee cups. Um, it is a powerful statement. This idea that he is our fortress, he is our strength, he's our ever-present help in time of trouble. I mean, even just saying that, there's people in the room even right now that you need to hear that. Maybe you're rolling your eyes because you're wondering, where is God in the midst of my trouble? And I get that. I get that. But it's interesting when you look at the way Psalms are written and the way that God has them structured, um, it goes beyond just those platitudes, those coffee cup kind of statements that people sometimes throw out like, hey, hey brother, it's okay. Be still and know that he's God. You're gonna be all right in your trouble. I don't know why I got all redneck right there, <laughs> but I thought I had to. Um, but when we, when we look at the collection, when we begin to study the word of God together as the people of God, we're gonna, there's some things that we're gonna, we're gonna see here that we're gonna find out here. In fact, in, in studying where this song came from, there's a, there's a couple of places that they suspect it came from. Nobody knows for sure. Some of them we know for sure. Like this is where it was written. Like when we looked at Psalm 36, we knew. It was the Psalm of David. David wrote it. We knew, you know, what was happening in his life when he wrote it. I mean, it was very obvious. It was, I mean, it even says, you know, at the, at the highlight of the Psalm, he was, he had just escaped. He had just acted crazy. He had just come out, you know, he was in the cave with his buddies uh, that he really didn't even know that well, and he writes this psalm and they sing it together. So we know those have details. This one, not as many, but lots of commentary out there. Some guys are arrogant commentarians and they, they think that they know for, they're like, absolutely the psalm, this is why we know, this is where they found the, you know, the text and this is when it was written. Um, but most commentarians say, uh, we don't know exactly. But within a certain time frame, so the 700 BC, you know, to, uh, to 650, somewhere in that, in that, in that range, which was, would be in that Second Chronicles chapter uh, 32-ish, um, you'd be, or First Kings, remember how in the Come and Listen series, First Kings 18 overlays, Second Chronicles chapter 20, they're in the same time period, so we get to hear the stories twice. Well, there's the story of Hezekiah that's in there. He was one of the, I, people call him good kings, I call him medium. Uh, medium kings. They were, they were good. They had problems. They had issues, just like David. David was a good king. We call him the best king over Israel other than King Jesus. Uh, but I mean, he murdered some guy that was his friend because he wanted to steal his wife. So, I mean, he wasn't that great. Um, but we get Hezekiah. Hezekiah, and I'll tell this just quickly so we have some, some context because I think there is things that we see in here. This idea of the, the bow being broken, the shield being burned, that's language that's used when you look at uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, this idea that the water is flowing into the city of God, this, this gladness, this, this is the source where water is found in the city of God, the city of David, Jerusalem, um, is kind of the picture that it paints. Well, there's a, there's a reason for that. The, in the Psalm itself, is known as a siege psalm, like God is a fortress. Like if we're under siege, God is a fortress, or the, the translation uh, in the Hebrew really goes down to God is a shelter. He is gonna keep you safe in the midst of a siege. Well, Hezekiah, the most famous story about Hezekiah and his prayer that's in three, actually three parts of scripture, Chronicles, King, uh, Second Chronicles, Second Kings, and in Isaiah, um, is about 
Hezekiah being under siege from the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the most powerful nation on the planet. They had already wiped out, years before had wiped out the northern kingdom. Now they're in the southern kingdom. They had wiped out country after country after country, plundered and dominated. And now they're coming after uh, Judah and specifically uh, Jerusalem. And Jerusalem had city walls. We've talked about the importance of city walls. In fact, Hezekiah was smart and he fortified the walls. But one of the things that Hezekiah did and one of the reasons that the, commentary, the people that write commentary think that this one really was written about rejo the rejoicing coming out of this particular siege is because Hezekiah rerouted the water into the city of God, into Jerusalem, because they were under siege from the Assyrians. The Assyrians came and said, give us Jerusalem. And they said, no, we're not gonna. And they battened down the hatches and they wouldn't have survived had Hezekiah not been smart. He had people literally dig tunnels, cut off the spring from going outside and around the city, which would give the enemy water and rerouted the water into Jerusalem. And all of a sudden they have a, a eternally flowing stream of water in the city of David, in the city of God. So that's where you get some of that language, or at least the commentaries say that some of that language comes from. And then Hezekiah ends up, in the beginning, Hezekiah does panic and he pulls things off of the temple. Some gold pays off some of the Assyrian officers so that they will at least temporarily leave, but the Assyrians come back. They begin mocking and making fun of all the people because they're listening to King Hezekiah say, God's going to take care of us. Hezekiah ends up praying and going before God, humbling himself and saying, hey, I don't want to panic anymore. I want to trust you because you're the God of, of everything. And he tears his clothes, humbles himself, and has this beautiful, wonderful prayer. And you can go look it up. It's really powerful. And then Isaiah, the prophet, comes to him later and says, I just want to let you know, everything's taken care of. And he's like, what are you talking about? Isaiah was a prophet. He heard directly from God. So he's like, this is the word of the Lord. And he basically repeats what God told him, which is basically bad news for the Assyrians. And then God, angel of the Lord, next morning, they all wake up. All these Assyrians are dead, with the exception of a couple of them who run back to their capital city. And the king ends up getting killed by his own two sons because they just freak out and they're like, he's an idiot. He put us in there. 185,000 people just died by one crazy angel that got up in the middle of the night. These people didn't even know what was going on. So amazing story in scripture, but it's all about a siege. Now, we don't relate to a city siege. Like nobody's thinking, okay, we're, you know, we're in Jacksonville. You know, we're, we're, we've got walls in the city and all of a sudden we've got, you know, some, some weird countries coming in and trying to set siege. You know, how is this, this relative? Um, but it is. In fact, um, Martin Luther, who wrote his own hymn out of this psalm, said this is, when we talk about a siege and you read Psalm 46, he said it's the siege of the enemy himself, the voice of Satan himself. It's a siege of the heart and a siege of the mind, which is very true because our fears are different than the baseline survival. Right? I mean, when we think about psychology, we talk about that. Mike, I appreciate the nod, psychology today. Appreciate it. Awesome. So in, in, if you've been like taking a psychology class in college, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the big triangle, right? Tells you, okay, what do we need as humans? Psychologically, what it was, well, just even physically. Starts down what? In the basic needs, food, water, shelter. That's the bottom block of Maslow's. And as soon as that one is satisfied, you move up the the line of the triangle in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And the next one that comes is belonging, how we interact with each other. Like how, what tribe are you gonna be in? Because tribes, right, were a way of surviving. 
When you're on alone, when you're alone and you're outside the pack, that's when you get killed. So early survival, that's what it was. But that also applies to us. We're very tribal. We want to belong. In fact, every article you read in psychology about belonging, it is, it goes beyond just the fact that we like people and want to hang out. It is primal. It is why God wired belonging. You were not ever meant to be alone. So that's the next rung on the ladder. And then it comes up into the self-actualization era of the triangle, right? You get in that zone. And what is that? That's value and worthiness. It does my life matter. That's self-esteem. That's, you know, are we, how do we feel about ourselves? Are we insecure? Are, are we secure, right? Insecurities all wired into that. So psychologists say that there's really the, the baseline, especially in the West, like you don't care about whether you're insecure or your feelings are hurt when you don't have any food or water. That really doesn't matter. You gotta, you gotta deal with those first. That's why it's down on that, that portion. But most of us in the West are not dealing with shelter problems. We're not dealing with food and water problems. So we, we land in that belonging zone, in that self-actualization worthiness, you know, where it, my self-confidence, where, where you know, is my, am I doing anything valuable in life? Do people like me? You know, that, that old Stuart Smalley Saturday Night Live special, you know, I'm good enough and smart enough and doggone it, people like me. I mean, that's, that's where we are, right? Man, y'all are kind of like, wow, I've never watched Saturday Night Live in my life, <laughs> I guess. Um, so we get in here and, and, and what you begin to see is there's three areas in which we kind of dive in and we become under siege. One is mortality. Like we, we still deal with the mortality thing. We don't want, none of us want to die. So health problems. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago when I got my undiagnosed neurological thing and started bouncing around from doctors and Googling my symptoms and figuring that out. That's a mortality issue. That's when the panic button happens. We, we begin to panic and react when there's a threat to our mortality. The other one is social survival, which that's a belonging issue. Like, how do I, am, I, am I in the right group? Do I have the right tribe? Am I at the right club? Are my kids in the right school? Am I keeping up with the Joneses? Do we, are we in the right houses? Did we, you know, that, that kind of thing. Like beach people are like, you know, kind of snobbish about the beach. Like, I don't go over the ditch because the beach are my people, right? I mean, that's what you do. It's like, and then, and then people that are intercoastal west, they still say to their friends, they live at the beach and beach people are like, you don't live at the beach, poppers. Um, I mean, it's just terrible, social survival. And then self-worth, right? Then you've got that. So those are the things that we hit the panic button on most days. Issues that we can't control, whether when things get out of our control, we begin to panic, when we can't live life the way that we want to. Um, you know, years ago, I was, uh, I was in college. And in college, you know, you want, you want, when it comes to like value, worthiness, self-worth, you want to have things pretty locked down. You know, you're single, you're trying to, you know, single, ready to mingle. You're trying to find, a, find somebody, have the right group of friends. Um, I, you know, I'm just getting these little small laughs over here, you know, I'm glad, you know, I'm paying you later. Um, but you get, you know, you're in college and you, you th that's an important thing. Like what you, you know, you're a little less, I mean, you don't mind going to, you know, class and flip-flops and a torn shirt. Uh, at least some of the guys don't. But for the most part, you're, you know, you, you want everything tight and squared away. Well, all of a sudden I got this bald spot on the side of my head. 
I know, I've got hair issues. For those who've been around for a while, you're like, gosh, this is another hair story. He really needs therapy. Um, but I did, it's like for a guy that already had some you know, hair trauma, I got a bald spot on the side of my head and it wouldn't go away. I had, if some of you might know what this is, alopecia areata, never knew. Went to the doctor, said, you've got this. And there's, and you, if you know anything about it, there's really no cure for it. It just happens and it can go away. It might not go away. You might have it forever. It can be like just alopecia where all the hair falls off and you're in your 20s and you never get any of it back. So that's the story you get from the doctor. So yeah, there was a little panic for me. Am I gonna be hairless like everywhere like for the rest of my life? I was just like, oh my gosh. Um, but I just lost this chunk right here. And that doesn't do anything good for the self-worth and self-esteem. I mean, I, I really got good. Like I, dude, I had a collection of hats that would have blown your mind. Like I just had so many sweet lids. You can't wear a hat everywhere. And I had, me and Beth were dating. Um, so I had kind of locked it down. I mean, I was, you know, self-worth was still kind of intact, but still, it's like, I gotta go out. And she would be like, you cannot wear a hat when we go out. I'm like, well, you're gonna have to draw, like draw in some hair. So she would get serious. See, this is what happens when you panic, man. I said, get that, let's find the right shade. Get your makeup bag out. That pencil right there, I think that's that champagne color of my hair right there. Let's get that. And she would color it in. Uh, but it, during the day, you could see it. So I'm like, we can't go out except at night because the freaks go out at night. And so at night, we can go, you know, and then nobody will see the business. I mean, you, there's irrational behavior that begins when all of a sudden there's, a, there's an attack, a siege on the kingdom of your self-worth or your social survival or your mortality. And what you do, you know what you do when, when, when all of a sudden you're in panic mode? You know who you don't care about when you're in panic mode? You don't care about anybody but you. You don't care about, you will hurt people. And even over the smallest things, things that are going to resolve. You ever, you probably, some of you probably that are panickers, like, like serious, like outward, everybody panics. Everybody does. Everybody has issues with fear. Like, and that's not something I've dug up from the Bible. You can read psycho social psychology journals. Fear is a real deal. In fact, fear is a, God put it in there for a reason so that you'll live. I mean, there's things that you should run from. Um, but we all have problems with panic because that's, a, that's a, different, a whole different thing. And there's people that are outward like over small things like freak out. You know, you get wigged out about small things. I got flipped. I would flip out when I went in my house that was getting ready to get, you know, it was in the process of renovation. I'd walk in and I would see the doorway was built in the wrong place. And I just would panic. I mean, I was just like, grab the plans. Whoa! You know, I'd go over to the guy that didn't, yeah, I was like, dude, did you see the wall right here and the thing and why? Whoa! You know, and, and they would do it. And the next day I would go in and then it would be in the wrong place again. Um, and I would freak out, you know, and that's just, it's, it's, it's not worth freaking out, right? There's, there's bigger things. But what, what do you do in that? You hurt people. And I, did, I was not a nice human in that process. I mean, I just, you, you, end up, you end up thinking about you and only you. Your gaze is down here. Your gaze is on you. How do I take care of me? How do I make sure this is okay? How do I make sure people like me? How do I make sure I'm, I'm good enough to be in this group of people? You talk more and you listen less when you're in panic mode and you're worried about who you are and what you look like in front of other people. You know, there's a game we played in students that, that represents panic really well. It's called Hug It Out. Students that are in here, you know what I'm talking about. It's super awkward. I mean, it's great. The leaders love it because they just love to, you wouldn't be in student ministry if you didn't want to watch awkwardness. This is middle schoolers and high, high schoolers together. 
mixed gender. I mean, they're just, they don't even know what to do. They're like, oh my gosh, you smell good, but I don't want to be around you, you know? Um, and they're just freak out. It's awesome. And so you got this game called Hug It Out where you just call out a number and they have to get in groups of that number. So you go 13 and they all have to get it. And if you can't form a group of 13, your whole group's out. So if we count and you're 12, you're, you're, you gotta go sit down. Or if you can't find a group, and this is what happens to most of them, 13s get together, you know, and then there's like the person trying to get in there and people are just kicking them going, get out, you'll make us 14 and we'll lose, you know? And it's like rejection at a, at a, and it's awesome to watch. It's like, you see them go, <laughs> they go back and they have to sit down because they couldn't get into the deal and people immediately clump, you know, like five. And you see five people get together and somebody's going over there trying to get in there and you're like, no, don't get in there. You, sometimes you see people exchange people like, you know, he's a better five than you are. <laughs> it's awful and awesome. It's so good. But what, what do you notice? What are, they, what are they doing? They don't care about anything. They're willing to reject people, push people off. All they want to do is make sure that they're included and they're scrambling, they're scrambling. And when our eyes are on us, there's no way we're gonna be still and know. All we know to do is panic because we're looking at us. We, we think we can take care of us. We think, and Mike said it last week, I, I can do it myself. I can figure this out myself. Just like a little child does, you know, they button their shirt all wrong and they come to you, yeah, I did it myself. And you're like, it's a nice job there. God's, God knows, but we, we continually navel gaze. And what Psalm 46 is doing is it's trying to lift our gaze off of ourselves to see the God that is our fortress, that is our ever-present help in time of trouble, that we know that we're insufficient, but He is sufficient. I mean, that was the whole point Mike gave in giving us the expanse of the universe is who he is, that he is way, way, way bigger than we could possibly imagine and way more capable and controls way more than we could possibly imagine. And he's on our side. He is our fortress. He is our shelter, our ever-present help in time of trouble. So in and through this Psalm, I wanna just jump into three things that, like why is it possible for us to not panic? How can we adjust our gaze? If the Apostle Paul was coming and he was leveraging this psalm for the church at Rome or the church at Colossae or the church at Ephesus or the church at Philippi, he's le or leveraging it for us, what would he say? How would he say, okay, this is teaching us and giving us hope today that we would look different, that we would react. The rest of the world panics. And that's what Hezekiah did. His initial reaction to the siege at Assyria was freak out. And he did, he freaked out, took gold off the temple, paid people off, and then something changed. Something adjusted it. If you go read that prayer, it, it almost sounds like what we're reading in Psalm 46. So why is it possible that we would not panic? How can we be, be still and know that he is God? Well, there's some attributes here. So I wanna ask that question. Okay, God's speaking this over you. Be still and know that what? So there's three things, because that's, that's the hinge of this psalm. Be still and know that he is God, but what about God? Be still and know that God is what? So we're gonna insert who he is. And the first one is that God, he is, be still and know that God is ever-present, that he is ever-present. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will 
not fear. I mean, that's a, that's a strong term to say that, that we won't fear in the midst of, of siege. And I said, I don't wanna just kind of do this in, in terms of spiritual platitude. So you're probably thinking, well, great, Derek, you're just telling us God's ever present. Well, we knew that. I've been to church a couple of times. That's what church people believe, that God's always around. He's ever present, but I'm in the middle of this circumstance and I don't see him. And how does that help me? How does, get that on the ground for me, Derek. And I get that. I read, sometimes people will send you things or email you something or say something to you. And I've wanted to slap some of those people on the way um, and say, please, please don't send me that coffee cup verse. But if we read this Psalm and, and, and dig into what God is saying, let's look at just even the word ever present. This word ever in the Hebrew means, see, I, I, I would read that if I glossed over it, I would say, okay, God is always present. That's good news. I really do want him to always be present and God to always be around. I want him to be my refuge and my shelter. But how's that helping me right now? Well, listen to this. He's ever, ever present. The God that is on your side, he's a mighty force. That's what this word ever means in the Hebrew. He's mighty, he's a force. He's abundant. He's got this, this abundance in his presence. It's exceedingly much to a great degree. See, that, that's a whole different ballgame to me. That's not he's always present, like I'm just always here. It's he's, he's a presence. He is a force. He is abundant. When he walks into the room, things change. When he walks into the room, things change. When God is in our midst, things change. And what the psalmist is saying and what God is saying to you is that I want you to know that I'm ever present, that I'm abundant, that I'm a force. I'm not just passively looking on going, I hope everything goes okay with you down there. But he is, he is a force on your side for good. You know, several years ago, we were leaving here. It was probably 2015, 2016, when you could actually park around here. Um, and I was parked right where uh, in the public lots that were right there were in front of Marguerite. They're still there, but Margaritaville people always take them up. And I was pulling out after the 1115, um, just preached twice, um, full of God, just absolutely saturated with the spirit. <laughs> I pull out and this, this, these people just start yelling and screaming, you hit my car. And I knew for a fact I didn't hit my car. I mean, I, I just, I was like, I did not hit anything. I would have felt it. I know what it's like to hit something. I didn't hit anything. And I get out and I look and there's, there's a guy, there's a girl, there's another guy and they're just screaming at me. What, you hit him up, you just backed out, you weren't even looking, you knew it. And I was looking and I was about to, I was, even though I was saturated with the spirit, I was about to really lose my Christianity in the parking lot. Um, I, was so, I was about to be upset and before I opened my mouth, and this, is, this isn't an exaggeration because my wife reminded me of this story and told it actually better than I did. She said, a very tall man came and walked up very quickly and pointed. He pointed at those people and he pointed at the dent. And he goes, they didn't do that. That dent was already there. I saw it. You didn't hit them. They didn't hit you. And I thought they were going to argue. People were going to say something, but he, he just came in. He flew in. It just came in from out of nowhere. And everybody just kind of went and just walked off. And I'm like, and Beth's like, we, and we, didn't, I, we turned around and he was gone. And Beth goes, that was an angel. 
That's ever presence. Like something that comes in and swoops in and you're like, they're there. It's not like, and your parents are present at, a, at your ball game. It's like, yay, Johnny did good. You know, he's in the stand, you know, they're in the stands and they're cheering and rooting for you. But that's not ever presence. You ever felt it when, just when somebody comes in the room and everything changes, like people whip around and they're like, okay, we all got, we're all talking and doing the whatever, the meeting's getting ready to start. And then the person walks in and it's, it's like, shroom. you know, they just hold something. It's just a different type of thing. That's ever presence. And so we can be still and know that he is ever present. We don't have to be shaken. We don't have to do the, the freak out. We don't have to push people out of the way, stomp on people, elevate ourselves above people because we've got a God that's, that's with us in every step, in every turn. Next, as we continue with this psalm, it says in verse four, it says, there is a river whose stream, streams make glad the city of God. It's one of the coolest things. Um, thinking about that aquifer being redirected and coming and flowing out of um, the, the, the side and center of Jerusalem. It's the holy place where the, the most high dwells. So it's speaking that the city of God, that God dwells in this city and that God is within her and she will not fall. It's that we're under siege, but God's in here and God will help her at break of day. That's another reason they think this is like, that was what, what happened. In the morning they got up, Assyrians, 185,000 of them were all dead because the angel of the Lord came in. I know that's uncomfortable, but hey, I'm glad he's on my side, right? So the second thing that we see here is that he dwells within you. Be still and know that he dwells within you. Don't panic because he dwells within you. Well, how do you know that? Well, that is who we are. In the Old Testament, that wasn't the case. He, he was in the Ark of the Covenant. He was in the tabernacle. He was in the temple, right? He was in the, the pillar of fire. That's called a theophany. Remember, that's a manifestation of God. He was in the pillar of fire. But in the New Testament, Guess what? He dwells within you. Ephesians 1 verse uh, 13 says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. You're marked with the Holy Spirit who is a deposit, deposit denoting inside of you, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The apostle Paul would even correct the Corinthian church. He's telling them, hey, don't forget your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. It's a place where God dwells. Your body is not your own. So the city of God is now here. When Jesus ascended, he told them, I'm gonna send somebody, the comforter, he's coming. They didn't even know what they were talking about. And what happens? Acts chapter two. Instead of a pillar of fire, a manifestation in the Old Testament, one singer, single pillar of fire, what was it? It was a bunch of tongues of fire individually on everybody's head. The temple was separate. People couldn't even come in to go into the Holy of Holies. It was one priest, one time a year would make you know, sacrifice for all the people. Everybody went in nervous. And now you've got all of the people that believed in Jesus at the time when the Holy Spirit comes, they've got individual pillars of fire because what? God was dwelling within them. How crazy is that? That's who you are. Be still and know that God is within you. Think about the, uh, in John chapter four, the woman at the well, what is Jesus telling her? He's saying, there's, there's a well. She's like trying to tell her, it's like, why are you here at noon? And Jesus knows it's because she doesn't want to run into all these ladies. She's stolen their husbands. And Jesus knew 
He ends up calling her out and saying, hey, I know, I know who you are. I know you don't have, I know why your husband's not here because you don't have a husband. The guy you live right now is, is not even your husband. You've had five husbands before that. And she's like, what? And basically what Jesus says, he says, look, there's, there's water. And he's you know, using the, the well as an illustration. There's water available to you that will spring up. It's everlasting water that will spring up to life. You'll never have to refill again. She's like, well, tell me where this water is. And what's Jesus saying to her? You're drinking from the wrong well. You, you, you're thinking you're going from to man after man after man. You think this, you're in your panic of who you think you are. You don't think you're pretty enough. You don't think you're a good enough wife. And you've gone through husband after husband after husband. The insecurity must have just absolutely ate her alive. The fact that she went to the well at noon showed that she was embarrassed of herself. But over and over and over again, she was looking to a man to fill her tank, to fill her cup. And Jesus comes along and says, there's a wellspring of life available to you. He's, he can be within you. It can be always ever present well. He dwells within you. This water that makes glad the city of God that never ends is possible for you. And if you have this water, guess what? You, don't, you no longer have the spirit of fear. Look what it says in Romans chapter eight. It says, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. So you've been engrafted into this family because... You're a follower of Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, this is what Jesus did on the cross. He made a way for this to happen. That the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. No more panic. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption. Look at this. Fear, adoption. I tried to reconcile that. I was like, usually it's fear and not fear or fear and I'm confident. But Paul equates adoption with the solution. You've been engrafted into a family. And you know what that means in the midst of your trouble? You know what that means when most people panic? Is guess what? You're not alone. By the blood of Christ, he tore down the wall of hostility. And all of us crazy people that believe in Jesus that are in this room, we're family. And if you think you're alone right now, you're not. That's the enemy speaking to you. You've got a family. Look next to you. Look around you. Look in this room. We're all singing these songs together, saying our God is able. He's not done with you yet. We need that. It's the place that we need to be as the church is to understand that we are an insider. That nagging itch for belonging that God put inside of you, that psychology today talks about, that we all need our social survival. Guess what? Guess what? Guess how we get that? It was bought with the precious blood of Christ on the cross. You were engrafted into a brand new family and you eternally belong. You are a citizen of the best country club of all, Christianity. You are a a child of God. That is a mind-blowing thing coming from the Word of God, that not only you have the ever-present God in the midst of trouble, but that He dwells within you, that the city of God is inside of you. That is a powerful, powerful thing that you've been adopted. And lastly, let's continue. Check this out. I love the imagery here. It says, though the earth give way, like if the worst things happen, earthquakes, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, the waters roar if there's hurricanes, natural disasters, and the mountains quake and they're surging. Well, guess what? Think of the worst areas where most people on planet Earth would panic. The author is saying, the psalm writer is saying, God is saying to you, you don't have to panic because his, he lifts his voice and the earth melts. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he says, be still and know that I am God. 
So number three is he is the first and he's the last. He is the alpha and he's the omega. He's the one that created all of the things. The, the mountain that fell into the sea, guess what? He created that. He controls that. He can destroy that. If you're wondering if God is able to handle your problems, he can. And I read in Desiring God, Marshall Siegel says this. He said, be still in this passage is a rebuke before it's a comfort. He's letting us know, be still and know that I am God and not you. He's defining that you and me are very different. God's saying, you are not me and I'm certainly not you. Be still and know that I am God and not you. And we need that. Sometimes in our circumstances, we need to have those things shaken. Our, we walk around in life wanting so desperately to be sufficient. It is, the, it is the essence of the Garden of Eden. They wanted to be on their own. They wanted to, as Mike said, do it their self. They wanted to create a world where they were gods, where they could live in autonomy. But we were created what? By and for God. We were, we, the symbiotic relationship for us as image bearers of God, we were created to be insufficient outside of him and each other. So God brings us together through the cross of Jesus Christ, and he also reconciles us to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. We were meant to be together. But our problem is, as, as Mike said, is we can often become Mr. Big Stuff. We, we, do our, we, we, we think we can do it all on our own. And what we present, because we can't, is a facade that imagery of perfect family, the imagery of perfect wife, the imagery of perfect children. I got, I've got all of this figured out. And what I've, what I've learned in my years of pastoring uh, is that comes crashing down. Holding up the facade, the whitewashed tomb of I've got it all figured. And in, in your mind, you might think that you do. Like, gosh, we figured it out. We've got, we figured out all the the, the, we put up all the guardrails for our kids. We figured out, you know, if they do this, we're gonna do this. We've got them all controlled here. We're doing this over here. We've got this. They're going to the right school. We've got them in this thing. We're gonna make sure they don't go here. They're not gonna spend the night there. We're not gonna do this over here. And we've got it. And we're the ones that are giving everybody the advice on all the stuff. We've got all the stuff. We've got it. Guess what? That, that thing will fracture and it will fall. And in God's sovereignty, it will humiliate you. It will. I mean, kids, they have a way of you, you think you've got it all, you can puff your chest out all you want. A kid will absolutely out you. I mean, in the worst way. I mean, it's just awesome. I mean, it's what God does. I always say kids are the great equalizer. If you are super tight and organized and type A and you've got it all worked out, kids are gonna make you have to loosen up because they're gonna tear up your world. They're gonna blow your house up. And you're gonna be like, what, you know? And then if you're too loose and you kind of are like, no, we just do, we kind of float, fly by the seat of our pants, you better not or one of them will die. <laughs> So it's like God puts them in your life. It's like the gospel being preached to you. You know, like you are not sufficient. You need him. You need him. And honestly, you know what the, the, the world, the world, the unbelieving world around you, they don't need perfect you. They need honest you. And God knows that. He wants them not to look at you, but their gaze should be on him because that's where their salvation comes from. He is their ever-present help in time of trouble. He is the first and the last, not you. And I know families in this church, their marriage has crumbled in the last 10 years. I mean, just tragic things that, that, that happened. And God, from the ground up, rebuilt them. But it was a complete exposure. The, the perfect family fell, the perfect wife and husband fell, the perfect spouse, the perfect children, all of that crumbled 
into insufficiency and it was the most, it ended up being for these families the most beautiful thing. And they would testify today in front of you of the greatness of God and how he is able, how he can rebuild, how he can restructure. Pride came down that I can do it myself. I can do all these things. I can figure out how to live my life. I've got it all figured out. All of that got pulled apart. And in the midst of that, God created some, some of the most honest, beautiful people that are shining the biggest, brightest light on Jesus and leading people. I'm watching it right now. I was even watching it this morning. Leading people to Jesus every day. It's so, so powerful. But, but also, he is the first and the last. You know what that speaks over us? Is the authority that God has to say, it's not over till it's over. Because some of you might have heard, hey, he's my ever-present help in time of trouble, but where was he when I was abused? Where was he in the midst of this situation? Where was he in my past? Where was he when I grew up without a father? Where was he in these situations? And I just want you to hear, he is the first and he is the last. He is the one that has authority and he loves you. He is the one that has authority and he loves you. And he's saying to you right now, I want you to hear this. It is not over till it's over, until I say it's over because he's the one that has authority. Isn't it interesting that when somebody has authority, something that you were panicking about can be settled? Like when they're an authority in that area, like when I had my undiagnosed neurological disorder, I got to about 2008 and I was at Mayo. I'd been to doctor, 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 done all the stuff, you know, do what you panic, you know, you Google all the symptoms and uh, Google tells you you're dying tomorrow and you get over all that. And then I ended up at Mayo and did all the tests over again because Mayo doesn't accept anybody else's tests. So like we're Mayo and we're gonna do it all again, uh, which is awesome. And they did all the tests and I had the, I ended up with the leading, one of the leading neurologists in the country. She was the, like when it comes to multiple sclerosis, she was like the person to go see. And I had been misdiagnosed, you know, multiple times over three and a half years. Um, and she'd read all my tests and she said, she said, I, I wanna just kind of go over this with you uh, real quick. And uh, I said, that'd be great. Uh, you know, you're nervous after getting a bunch of tests back. You're wondering, you know, what do you got? And uh, she says, I wanna do two things. One, to affirm you do have some issues. Like you've got a neurological thing that um, could be idiopathic, could be, you know, I w there's something going on. Um, so that was good. Cause I was like, okay, I'm not a crazy person. Um, but she said, I can tell you this, I've been doing this. My primary work for 30 years has been in MS. You don't have that. And she said, I'm not supposed to say that because we never know. Like there's no way to really know unless see or don't see blacks on the brain and all this stuff. But she, and she said, no, I'm not supposed to. She said, but I'm old and I really don't care what people think. You don't have it. I've done this too long. And she just said, she looked me in the eyes and she said, look at me. And I said, okay. She says, you are not gonna die. You're gonna live. And I just, there was something about that that was just so, just hit me and I'm like, it's unbelievably freeing. But what, what hit me after that was immediately felt the presence of God when I was in my car and God's, God's saying, you, how many people spoke over you, Psalm 27, my words to you, that you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. One doctor tells you you're gonna live and you feel okay. And I realized in that moment that, that we, we, I put my, all my, my reliance and my hope in this doctor and it was great. I, I appreciate her to this day, but it just, it, it, what it did in the, in the future is it highlighted the word of God. I was like, the one that created the human body, that when doctors are stumped, God's not. He is able. 
He, he brought everything into the world. He created everything. He's sovereign and controls everything. And he is the one that can take everything out, move everything out of the way. He controls it all. Not only that, he loves me. That's the other, the other part of the equation. You've got God with all the authority as the first and the last. He speaks words over us that say, you are gonna see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You know, he is, he is our ever-present help in time of trouble. Be still and know that he is God. When he speaks, the earth melts. That's his authority speaking to somebody right now in the circumstance you're in, in the world that you're in, in the problem that you're carrying. You know, my wife in 2021, some of you know, I, my, my symptoms came back after being gone for 12 years, which was very devastating for me. I probably did not say to you how hard it was and how difficult uh, 2021 was, but it was, it was very hard um, mentally just to think, oh, am I gonna go down this road uh, the way, and I, and I told you a couple weeks ago, it's, 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 I'm, I seem to be climbing out of that, that season, which is very good. But in 2021, we went, I went on a short sabbatical. We were in the Carolinas and I was just in pain and I didn't want the kids to know what kind of pain I was in, but we're doing all these hikes and I got chronic pain, neurological stuff. I'm stressed out, worried about it. Um, and of course you lay all that on your spouse, don't you? It's like, you know, baby, I don't feel good. You know, think about that. Dudes are like terrible with a man cold. I had an undiagnosed neurological disorder. My wife deserves a medal, um, but she just kept saying Habakkuk 3, uh, 19 over me. She said, you know, the sovereign Lord is on you. He will make your feet like the feet of a deer and you will tread on the heights. And she would say that over me. And then I started saying it. And I was like, the sovereign Lord is on me. He will make my feet like the feet of a deer. And I will climb this mountain in North Carolina. And it just, the, the, the authority of the word of God made me believe and I would look her in the eye and I'd say, am I gonna be okay? And she'd go, you're gonna be okay. And it wasn't her saying it, it was her faith and knowledge of the word of God that he's our ever present help in the time of trouble, that he is, he is his goodness is gonna be shown in the, in, the, in the land of the living, that we could be still and know that he is God, that when he lifts his voice, that everything else melts away, that he is able to save and mighty to save. He determines when the end comes. You know, in, in Revelation chapter one, I love this because John is, a lot of his friends are dead and Jesus has already ascended. He's on the island of Patmos. He's been, he's been exiled there um, and it's not looking good like for his life. And he's writing these words about a vision that he had. He says, you know, I, I saw this vision of the son of man. He came towards me and it freaked me out. He had hairs, white wool, his feet were like burnished bronze. When he talked, it was like rushing waters. It was a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. His eyes were like these fire eyes. His face was shining like the sun. When I heard him speak, I, I fell down as though I was dead. And then it says in this, in this verse, it says in 17, it says, when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though dead. Didn't realize this was his buddy, Jesus, you know, the, the disciple. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. And he placed his, his, his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid, don't panic. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. Now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. He's defeated death. There is an empty grave. 
The cross of Jesus Christ is just absolutely amplifying in your situation, in your circumstance, that he is more than able. Wherever you are, whatever is happening, whatever is going on, he is more than able. And if you're in the middle of it and you don't see him, you don't sense him today, he's speaking to you. And he's saying, your story's not done. I'm the first and the last. Nothing ends until I say it's over and nothing's irrevocable, nothing's irredeemable, not even death because I came back from the dead and I hold the keys to death.